0: Open up your Bibles, if you've got one, to the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. Second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. This is the very word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us, and that you would show us ourselves in your word, and that you would show us yourself in your word. We know and believe what your word says about itself, that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes forth and accomplishes everything that you have purposed for it to do. These are the ancient words that change us. So change us, O King. We want to be made in your likeness. Amen. Uh, Several years ago, uh, when I lived in the Cincinnati area, I made a trip to Elizabethtown, Kentucky, to visit an old professor of mine from Bethel Seminary. He was my preaching professor, and I really liked this guy. I benefited greatly from his instruction. I won a preaching scholarship under his instruction. And uh, he had left the seminary and had been pastoring a church, and he told me, it was a Baptist church, told me about an interesting situation Uh, The church he pastored had a Christian preschool and a little Indian boy from a Hindu family attended that preschool and at the preschool, of course, the children learned about Jesus. And during art one day, the children were given plates to decorate that said, Jesus loves me. And this child took the art project home and presented it to his mother, and his mother, of course, was delighted in this gift from her small child, and she placed that plate in a prominent place in the living room, in her home, not far from the little cabinet where she kept her images and statuettes of their Hindu gods. And some weeks later, a fellow Hindu came to the home to visit the mother and the boy, because the little boy had been talking to the other Indian children at the Hindu temple about Jesus. And he saw the plate on the wall in close proximity with these other gods, and he got upset, and he was chastising the mother and chastising the child, and the mother said, leave him alone, there's nothing wrong with Jesus, I love Jesus. Now no doubt she was sincere in her own way, though clearly she didn't understand yet the fullness of what it would mean to really love Jesus. And who knows, perhaps one day later, both mother and child did become fully devoted lovers of Jesus. But at that time, just by the way she lived her life, she professed to love both Jesus and these other gods. Jesus and Krishna, or Jesus and Shiva, or Jesus and Ganesh. That's not just a problem for Hindus. Her mindset is actually the default mindset for all human beings since the fall of our first parents in Eden, and that includes many professing Christians. You see, human beings are worshiping creatures. It is just in our nature. We cannot help but to worship something. But it's helpful to define our terms here. What do I mean by worship? What do I mean by saying that at the center of what it means to be human is to be a worshiper? Well, let's look at it another way. It's actually a way which psychologists recognize, and, um, and I think it's very helpful. Everyone in here who is not clinically depressed has a center around which they organize their lives, It is something that they are devoted to. They think it to be the most important thing in their life. It conditions the decisions that they make. It determines how they spend their time and their money and their energy. And often throughout the course of our lives, we will go through several objects of worship. And when we don't have that, That is what clinical depression is. We have no organizing center of our lives, and we are adrift, and we don't know what to do, and we cannot long live in that condition. We we simply lose the will to live, and that's why people who are depressed kill themselves. Because there's nothing that that is at the center of their life that says, this organizes my being, this gives me purpose, this gives me a, a, a direction to pursue, this gives me a way to make my decisions. I have nothing, therefore I am paralyzed. And they can't even get out of bed. Now we generally choose what we will worship based on some vision of a good life. And this vision of a good life arouses desire in us, and that causes us to craft our life around the pursuit of that vision of a good life. For some people, their vision of a good life is being physically strong and attractive. And so they orient their whole life around diet and exercise and very often some athletic pursuit. And if you were to go on their phone or their computer and look at their browser history, you would find how they spend their time and what they're thinking about. That You would find videos about workout routines and new recipes and the best clothing and gear for their chosen activity. Those people are worshipers of their own bodies. For some people, it's their children and child rearing and their vision of of the good life is of a successful child, and very often they have a very clear idea of what that means. It's it's a child who is popular and pleasant and attractive. It's a child who's a, a good student, a good athlete, a child, of course, for Christian parents who's a professing Christian, A child who gets into the the right college and marries the right person and has the right career and someday produces lovely, pleasant, obedient grandchildren who will come to your house and adore you. And that's what you want. And you focus all your attention on your children, trying to produce children that will give you that outcome. You're a worshiper of your children. Some of those parents become... Helicopter parents hovering all the time. Some of those parents become bulldozer parents, ruthlessly pushing anything out of the way that they think might be an obstacle or a hindrance to their vision of their child's well being and success. And our Christian schools and homeschool conferences are full of those kind of people, it's moms mostly. Our summer sports camps and traveling ball teams are also filled with those kind of people. And that's dads, mostly. We can organize our lives around the pursuit of sexual pleasure or making our parents happy. We can do it with our marriages or our careers. We can pursue financial security as the organizing center of our lives or physical health and longevity, or sports teams. I mean, you go to the Steelers games, and you sit there, and they flat out tell you, it's not an activity, it's a lifestyle. This is the Steelers nation. We live for the Steelers. No, I like the Steelers. I'm not going to live for them, especially not this year. My gosh. It's almost enough to become a Browns fan again, but I'm In Nebraska, where they don't have the Steelers and the Browns, it's Nebraska football. I will never forget the funeral I did for this guy. I only met him once, um, and the whole funeral was about how much he loved and was devoted to Nebraska football. I left that funeral sad. He was basically a nice guy, but he'd organized his life around being a fan of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. You can do it with golf, fishing, card games. Perversely, we can even do it with the church as a pastor. That's probably my greatest temptation. Whatever that organizing vision is, that's the thing that arouses desire in you and elicits that yes, I want that. I could be happy. I could be content if I just had that. That is what you worship. That is your God. Our churches are full of people who will readily say, like that Hindu mother, I love Jesus, and put him metaphorically right next to their other gods. And this is a great sin. This is perhaps the greatest sin. The essence of salvation is for God Almighty brought near in Jesus at great cost to be the organizing center of your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be truly saved. Jesus went so far as to say that our relationship with our family members had to take second place to him. And the gap between what he wanted and what they demanded from us must be so wide that it was like hatred. That's what he meant in Luke 14 when he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's saying the difference must be so well-defined that nothing but Jesus takes first place in our life. Do You see how radical this is? You cannot make your parents the central organizing principle of your life, or your wife, or your kids, or your siblings. Or, says Jesus, even the preservation and lengthening of your own life. That can't be your organizing purpose. And when there's a conflict, says Jesus, between mom and dad and Jesus and what he wants you to do, or the kids and Jesus, or the spouse and Jesus, or even yourself and Jesus, Jesus is saying here, you must not even consider it a situation worth thinking about. There is simply no room for debate. You do what he wants, and you turn your back, if necessary, on mom and dad and their demands, just as firmly as you would if you hated them. Notice what Jesus says in that passage. He says, if you can't do that, then you cannot be my disciple. He's not saying I won't let you be my disciple, he's saying it's not possible to be my disciple. It's like trying to ride two motorcycles at the same time. You just can't do it. You're just going to hurt yourself and others and crash two expensive motorcycles. You see, true Christian discipleship is simply the natural outworking in a life of God being the central organizing principle of the life. It's what happens when you replace your career or your kids or CrossFit with Jesus. And many people are afraid to do that. They're afraid to do that because they're really convinced that having the kids or the career or CrossFit at the center of their lives will make them happy, and having Jesus at the center of their lives as the replacement for kids or career or CrossFit will make them miserable. It's not true, but that's what most people think. Now that has a lot of implications for your life if that's what you think, if that's what you're doing, if that's what you believe. First of all, to put the kids or the career or CrossFit at the center of your life means that when these things conflict with what Jesus wants, you're going to turn your back on Jesus and what he wants. Just as firmly as you would if you hated Jesus. And that's why he says to us in the Sermon on the Mount, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will love the one and hate the other. There are many in the pews of American evangelical churches who are functional haters of Jesus without even realizing There are many who only even signed on with Jesus in the first place because they thought Jesus would help them to be more effective at obtaining and managing and enhancing their pursuit of money or career or marriage or their kids' success as they envision it. Secondly, by wrenching even good things out of their proper place, you end up harming your own soul and often, very often, as a matter of fact, I would say almost infallibly, harming the souls of others. The classic example of this is the parent who lives for their child's success as they envision it. It's almost proverbial that this way of raising children actually ruins them. Maybe they become spoiled and entitled Maybe they become helpless to do anything on their own or to overcome obstacles on their own steam because they've never had to, because mom will swoop in and take the obstacle away. And when they reach an obstacle, they just stand there waiting for mom to swoop in and rescue them. And what works when they're 15 is a lot harder to figure out when they're 35, And they're sitting there with the obstacle in front of them and their boss is looking at them and their fellow co-workers are looking at them going, overcome the obstacle, it's not that big a deal. And they're sitting there going, still waiting for mom to swoop in, rescue me. Maybe the children feel driven and harassed by mom's vision for them or dad's vision for them. And they have a different vision for themselves. And they want to exercise some self-determination. And so they grow angry and rebellious, and resentful. You see, putting created things in the place of God is foolish and it's destructive because created things can only truly flourish when they occupy their proper place in your life. Everything is a hierarchy in your life. And you make decisions based on where you slot things in that hierarchy. And if the wrong thing is at number one, Everything below it is a mess. Think of it this way. Suppose you or a loved one was at home one night watching the evening news, and all of a sudden you or your loved ones begins having a a severe chest pain and shortness of breath and dizziness and nausea and pain in the left arm. It's a heart attack, and it's a pretty major heart attack. So you call 911. 911. The ambulance arrives. The paramedics go, boy, this is is a a bad one, guys. And they, they load the patient into the ambulance. And they head for the hospital. And it's lights and sirens the whole way. Now suppose those paramedics had not yet had their supper. And they're hungry. And so on the way to the hospital with the patient in the back in critical condition, with lights and sirens They decide to go through the drive through at Burger King and pick up some dinner because they're famished. On what grounds would we criticize that decision? Well, what we would say is hey, guys, there's something more important and something urgent than your desire to appease your hunger. Uh, You need to have a life that's in balance. And the most important thing at this point in time is to transport the patient to the hospital for life-saving care. After that's done, go get something to eat. Your priorities are out of whack. And it could have deadly consequences for the patient. It's not that there's anything wrong with hunger. It's not that there's anything wrong with Burger King, though sometimes it's close. It's that it's there's there's nothing wrong with dinner. But to choose dinner as the priority under those circumstances is to have one's priorities out of whack. Dinner has a legitimate place. It's just not that place. And that's really what we're doing when God is not the organizing center of our lives. We're sitting in the drive-thru trying to decide between fries and onion rings when there are issues of life and death on the line. The main thrust of the first commandment is that God is to be the organizing center of our lives in more or less the same way that training to compete in the Olympics is the organizing center of the life of an Olympic athlete. And that is exactly the metaphor that Paul uses to describe the Christian life in First Corinthians chapter 9. It's a familiar passage to most of us, I would think. We've read it before. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, I've only had the privilege in my life of knowing one Olympic athlete. Her name is Paige McPherson. And uh, her dad was a friend of mine. He was uh, a fellow reformed Christian. He was an elder in the RCUS church in Rapid City. And he was my propane dealer. And his daughter, Paige, uh, was, he had two adopted daughters. They were Filipino. And she uh, was a a taekwondo athlete. And she went to the Olympics in uh, London and won a bronze in women's taekwondo. And her whole life was oriented around training for that event. She had a job, but it was like a part-time job at some clothing store or something like that. And, and, you know, as a 22-year-old young woman, her whole life, she didn't have a social life. She didn't have a boyfriend. She didn't want the distraction. She wasn't going to, to, to the university. All she was doing was training and then doing whatever she needed to do to sustain her life so that she could train. And Paul says that kind of focus is what it means to be a believer in Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. And if you're not doing that, you aren't a disciple of Christ. You are a disciple of something. You may not even be aware of what you're a disciple of. You're being formed by something because it's unavoidable. But you're not a disciple of Christ. Questions 104 and 105 of the larger catechism are helpful as a diagnostic tool. When we look at these, we find that the first commandment requires us to know God, not just to know about him, but to know him. You know, the great temptation of the Reformed church is to be content to know about God without really knowing God, is to become proficient in doctrine without drawing near to him with our hearts. The great temptation of the charismatic church is to place an overconfidence in a sinful, finite human being's ability to know him apart from the correctives of Scripture and the limitations that are placed on us by biblical revelation. And that's the only infallible source of knowledge about God. But we we must not do either wrong thing. We must search the Scriptures because they tell us what God is like. And then based on what we learn there, we must reach out to him. We must seek to experience him directly. And he says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with your whole heart. Knowing God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures automatically leads to all kinds of wonderful things. Once we get clear in our minds that we know God and the true God, then we recognize him, first of all, as the true God, and then we say, And you know what? He's my God. He's my God. And we will therefore highly value Him. We will meditate upon His nature and His character and His works, especially as they are revealed to us in the Scriptures. And when we begin to see him as he is, when our our vision becomes more focused and and the truths of the scriptures become sharper for us, this will automatically lead us to adore him and to desire him and to prefer him to all rivals in our affections. It will lead us to an appropriate fear of him. And we'll learn the joys of trusting him. And of calling on his name and and walking humbly with him. We'll obey him completely and submit to him in all ways because we want to please him. And when we displease him, we will be sincerely sorry. What kinds of things would we avoid? Well, the first thing that we should avoid is any ignorance of him. I mean, he's told us about himself for a reason. There's nothing in the scriptures that's throwaway knowledge. There's nothing in there that's not important at some level. Now, there are some things that are more important than others, and there are some things that are clearer than others, but there's nothing in there that's just irrelevant. There's nothing in there that doesn't speak about him in one way or another. And so we'll endeavor to correct our misunderstandings of him and our errors about him or our untrue opinions concerning him. We also won't think evil or unworthy thoughts about him. We also won't try and pry into his secrets or demand answers to questions that he doesn't reveal the answer to in Scripture There are some people who are like, I'm not going to submit to God until I get this question answered. And God says, who are you to put me to the test? You submit to me. If I see fit to answer your question, I will. And if I don't, I won't. Because as it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children. Let's learn the things that are revealed. We won't be stuck on ourselves or on anyone else or anything else that diverts our general flow of attention from him for too long. We won't refuse correction from our pastor or our ruling elders. We won't be hard-hearted or haughty or proud. We won't grieve the Holy Spirit. We won't be dissatisfied or discontent or angry at God for the things that he brings into our lives, even if they are hard and painful, and even if we don't like them. There was a time where I said, God, I know you're there. I know you're powerful. I don't like you. I do not like you for what you brought into my life. You're stronger than me. I don't have any choice. But I don't like you, and I don't trust you, and I don't think you're very good. That's a great sin. God, in his mercy, came to me gently and showed me his true character. And I had to fall on my face in an apartment in Omaha, Nebraska, on a February day, and say, you are good and I love you, and I'm sorry. We will recognize that the things that come from our Heavenly Father are in some mysterious way given to us to accomplish our good and His glory. And that's hard. The old Puritans used to speak of the refining fires of trials and tribulations that purify us. One of the Puritans this morning, I was reading a quote in the class, it was the final class on the Puritans, and I believe it was Thomas Brooks who said, no, good one." who said, For the godly man, trials are like a silver bell. The harder it struck, the more loudly and clearly it rang. So we lay our hearts low before our Heavenly Father and we say with our brother Job, Naked I came into the world from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We will also recognize that when good things come, the successes and the triumphs and the blessings and the prosperity, they don't come to us because we're so very good and so very brilliant. They don't come to us because we're lucky or fortunate. You know where the word fortunate comes from? It's a Latin word, Fortuna, was the goddess of good luck. And all over Europe, there are these little altars to the goddess Fortuna. And we say, "Boy, aren't we fortunate?" Which means, "Aren't we blessed by the goddess Fortuna?" No, you're not. Everything that comes to you, every good thing that happens to you, comes from the hand of Almighty God. There's a great path. I can't exactly remember where it is, but I think it's in Exodus. And and the Lord is talking to his people through Moses. And and he's talking about the fact that he'd inclined the hearts of the Egyptians toward the children of Israel. And as payment for their slavery, they carried out the treasures of Egypt. They had all this silver and gold and all these precious things. And he said, when you get into the land I'm giving you and you're living in houses you didn't build and eating from vineyards that you didn't plant and you've got gold and silver that was given to you by the Egyptians, do not let your hearts grow proud. Do not say, my hand has won me all of this wealth. Rather, Thank me and honor me. Last thing. The last thing is actually the first thing in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. God starts with a statement about who He is and what He has done for His people. I am the Lord your God. In this particular context, it's I am the one who brought you out of sin and slavery. I'm sorry, out of slavery in Egypt. And of course, the Lord your God brought you out of slavery as well, slavery to the devil. And God says, I am, therefore you shall. I am, you shall. There's a whole lot of us that are caught up on trying to figure out a way around the you shall, because we haven't really settled the issue of the I am. Is he your God? Is he the central organizing principle of your life? If he says no, does the no stand? And if he says do this, do you do it? And if he says don't do that, do you not do that? He has a right to tell you to do that, Because he is the I am, therefore you shall. Organizing your life around God in this way is the only way to have a flourishing life. Any other way destroys us, and it destroys the people that we love. Any other way of living is like draining the motor oil out of the engine of your car and replacing it with olive oil and then taking a drive with your children in the back seat. You're going to destroy the engine. You're going to render the car unsafe for you and your passengers and everyone else on the road as you're tooling down the highway in traffic and your motor seizes up and your car suddenly stops. That's what it is to live with any other center than the Lord Jesus Christ. It will destroy you. God doesn't have to send you to hell. You'll be going all by yourself. You'll just be like, I'm on my way to hell because I'm not going to have God as the center of my life. I'm going to do what I want. God says, all right, if you're going to do that, here's where it ends up. It ends up in hell. I am. Therefore, you shall. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer.